Father God, thank you that you are a great and holy God and that you want us to know you. Lord, that's the most amazing thing and it never ceases to, well, I don't know, to cause me to wonder, why would you want to speak to the likes of us? But you do and you speak loudly when we open our ears. So my prayer today is that um, we would open those ears, that we would choose right now to lay aside everything that we brought in, all the distractions in our lives, which are plenty, Lord, that we would lay them aside and that we would just concentrate on focusing on who you are and what you have to say to us today. And I thank you, Lord God, that you will answer that prayer, that you will help us to do that thing because you want us to know who you are and who we are in you. And I praise you, Lord, for what you will say, and I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, um, the scripture reference for today, today is called Today is the Day, and um, the scripture reference that was on the website and was on our advertising was a quote from Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah is the uh, centre, well, it's not exactly the centre book, but it's um, towards the end of the Old Testament, Isaiah 49. And I'm just going to read from two verses. Um, he says, Is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel? I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and its Holy One, to the despised one, to the one abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, Kings will see and arise, princes will also bow down, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a favourable time I have answered you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Um, Paul, in his letter to the Corinthian church, quotes directly from those two verses in Isaiah. And I don't know if you know much about the Corinthian church, but they were a church much like all churches in our day. They were struggling to know how to live as Christians. They didn't know uh, what to do, how to be, how to present the truth of Jesus. And uh, there was a big mix of people in there. They come from all sorts of backgrounds and they had followed all sorts of different religions before they became believers. There were some in there who thought they were believers and actually weren't. And there were others who were believers and as far as they were concerned, that was enough for them. They didn't need to follow Jesus. They could just put the ticket into heaven in their back pocket and then go and live the way they wanted to. So Paul is writing into a huge mix of people and he's trying to write to them about what it means that you are a Christian, that you are a believer in Christ Jesus. Because Paul knows that knowing that you are in Christ Jesus, knowing Jesus is the best thing that will ever happen to you. It is more wonderful than your most wonderful dream. It is an amazing happening that has come to you. And he wants them to understand that that, uh, that new life that you have in Christ Jesus will play itself out in your day-to-day -day living. And the reason he wants them to know that is not so that they can all tick the book. Well, I got up this morning, I read my Bible, and then I prayed, and then I went and went to church, and then I spoke really nice, kind things to my neighbor, and I didn't kick the cat, and I didn't do this, and I just lived a great life today, so I can go to sleep so wonderfully happy that I am a good spiritual Christian. He didn't write for that reason. 
he wrote so that every single one of them would know that they know that they know that God loves them more than they could ever imagine and that he will change them into the person, not the person that God wants them to be, although that will happen, but to the, change them into the person that they want to be, that they want to be. Because what happens when you become a Christian is out of the blue, out of nowhere, you start to want to be like the best person you could be. You want to be the best version of yourself that you could be. And that gets distracting sometimes. You get caught up in different areas and things happen to you and you lose that thought for a while, but it always comes back. And Paul writes to them saying, today is the day. Today is the day. And it really caught me when I was thinking about what to do today. (laughs) I thought, okay, I want to explore what he meant by that. I want to explore what it means that today is the day of my salvation. That today I can receive the glory and the majesty and the wonder of my salvation. I want to know what that's like because I want to live in that glory. I want to live in the wonder of it. And I don't want anything to get in the way of my understanding of that wonder. And so um, it started me off. I, I was thinking about I, why he used that quote from Isaiah. I was thinking about why would he take those believers who had no idea mostly of the Old Testament. They'd never read the Old Testament. They didn't know. And I wondered why he would take them there. And I also wondered because up to that point in the book of Isaiah, uh, Isaiah has shown God to be a glorious, majestic king. Everything up to that point is about a God who will judge the earth, about a God who is magnificent, about a God who is sovereign and in control, a God who created everything you can see. And suddenly here in this chapter, he starts to talk about this God, this king, as if he were a servant. And it is the most amazing thing because um, it's a sudden change from this is the sovereign Lord who created all things and he is also the servant who came to serve, to live and to die. And it's just a wonderful thing. And so I thought to myself, why is Paul writing to the Corinthian church to tell them this? Why is he telling them this? Why would it be that they need to know that the God who created all things became a servant so that they might become a, a believer in Christ Jesus? So I want to just take a little, a little look at it. Can you turn to back in your Bibles to, to Isaiah chapter 40? I'm going to read from verse 9 just to prove to you that he really has been talking about God as a king up till now. Um, <coughs> Well, in fact, I think we'll start from verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counsellor has informed him? With whom did he consult and who gave him understanding and who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering." 
All the nations are regarded as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. To whom then will you liken God? Or to what likeness will you compare with him? As for the idol, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He, too is, he who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot. He seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them, and they wither, and the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me, that I would be his equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. Up to uh, now and then on a little bit in Isaiah, this is the God that Isaiah is presenting to Israel. This is the God that is being presented to the world, to you and to me. And what we're told so far is that this God is king and he exercises the power of a king. This God will do away with injustice. This God will judge the earth. This God will fulfill every promise he has ever made. This God will be welcomed by Israel and this God will win the allegiance of all mankind all mankind. But now, suddenly, there's a change. And what we're shown is that this God will also be a servant. And as a servant, he will be obedient. He will suffer injustice. He will not raise his voice. He will become a covenant. He will become a promise. He will be rejected by Israel. And he will be mocked and spat upon by the world. At the climax of, from chapter 49 on to the end of the book, at the climax of this section, we have Isaiah 53. And almost everyone in this room will know that Isaiah 53 is the chapter about Jesus as the suffering servant who uh, was scourged for our transgressions and who paid the price for our sins. So what are the consequences? Why has, why has Isaiah portrayed this God like the king that he is and now as the servant? What is the reason for God deciding through Isaiah that he wants to show you and me that he is the creator of all the earth, that he is the sovereign most high God, that the whole earth is as nothing to him, that the leaders and the rulers of this earth are like grasshoppers in his sight? Why would that God then show us that I am the servant who came to be obedient, to be a promise, to suffer injustice? Why would that God do that? What would that achieve? 
Why? Why would he do it? That's a question you don't know. It's a question yet, but it's a question for you to answer. Why would God do that? Because actually, think about it. In, the old, in, the, in Israel, before Christ came, they couldn't understand this dual picture of God. They couldn't understand how God could be creator and sovereign and king and how he could also be the suffering servant. And so much so that they stopped reading the chapters that talked about him as a suffering servant. Now you may think, what's this all this what's all this got to do with me? You know, what's this got to do with me in 2019? Well I think it's because what I think it's to do with us is that we get confused too. And what we tend to do is to not read the chapters that don't fit what we want to believe about God. We want to lay aside the fact that that Jesus might be totally and utterly unique and God, sovereign, most high creator of all things, and have him as the suffering servant that we can emulate, that we can be like. We, We divorce the two sides that the whole Bible shows to us of God and we say I want God to be this or I want him to be that but I can't really understand a God who is both at the same time and it's confusing it was confusing for them in the Old Testament it's less confusing for us in the New Testament because we live this side of the cross but it is still confusing and that's why a lot of Christians I think get muddled (laughs) I'm supposed to live in the power of the king. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a victorious overcomer. I belong to the sovereign creator. I'm a child of God. I'm an heir with Christ. I'm going to inherit a wonderful inheritance. But my life is rubbish. It doesn't feel like a king's life. It doesn't feel like a royal life. My life feels like the life of the lowest of the low. And that's the problem, isn't it? The the coming together of the two things, the two truths, if you like, that God is king, that he is glorious, that Jesus is God, that he is glorious, that he is majestic, that he is splendid and forever will be, but that splendor might be shown mostly and most gloriously in his servanthood. And I think if we can see that, if we can see that this life that looks like rubbish, that this life where things are always going wrong, where this life that is like this and too often like this, that life is glorious in him. That life is the glorious life of a child of the sovereign creator of the universe. I just think if we can see that life for what it is, then today really will be the day of our glorious salvation. It will be the day when we begin or grow in our understanding of the fact that we are children of the king, but that king came to serve And that as we serve as he served, we most gloriously represent him. Oh, that's okay, Patsy. As long as you say it's not my teaching, you're okay. (laughs) 
So this contrast, as I say, was difficult for the, the uh, Israel. It was difficult for and confusing for them, and it is for us too. And it's difficult because we're taught that one day Christ will return in glory, and we're waiting for that day, and we want that day, and we and we know that we know the story of of God taking on flesh. We know that Jesus came. We know that He was called Emmanuel. We know that He was God with us. We know all of those things, but we find it hard to live in the truth of them and actually to be like him. Not just to know that we should be like him or that we will be like him, but that we can be and that we are actually like him now. I think that's the difficulty. Um, Paul used that quotation in Isaiah. He used it in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. So if you quickly flip to the New Testament to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Um, because Paul is going to talk to them. In fact, turn there, but we're not actually going to read it yet, sorry, just yet. Paul is going to talk to them about how this uh, understanding of the servanthood of God manifests itself in our lives. And he's going to say in... um, Chapter 6, verse um, verse 2, At the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And he's writing that to believers. He's writing that to believers in the church at Corinth. Why has he taken that quote Why is he saying, behold, now is the day of salvation? The writer to the Hebrews says much the same thing. Hebrews chapter 3. You don't need to go there. I'll go there. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13. He says, um, for we have been partakers of Christ. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. Um, uh, Sorry. Uh, (laughs) Did I just read verse 13? Oh, sorry. No, I I need to read verse 12 and 13. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sins. So the writer to the Hebrews takes that same quotation and he says, encourage one another as long as it is called today, as long as it is today. So what we understand from that is that there is a time, a period of time called today, and we're in it. So today started when Christ was resurrected, and it will end when he comes back. This is the period of salvation that the Bible calls today. Today is the day of our salvation. Today Corinthian believers, all believers across all time, are to live as Jesus lived. We know that. All of you who are believers know that. You know that that's the understanding we've been taught since when we were first a believer. I am to live like Jesus. I am to follow Jesus. The tricky thing is how I do it. How do I do it in the midst of my life? God explained to us in the New Testament that we died with Christ. Romans 6, verse 3 to 7, Paul will say, um, what, uh, verse 3, uh, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead 
through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is free from sin. And Paul will write in Galatians, for I have been crucified with Christ, Galatians 2 verse 20, for I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. If you are a believer in this room today, then you are dead in Christ, or dead to your old nature. You died with Christ. You died with Christ. If you're not a believer, don't worry, you're still alive. <laughs> you're alive until the end of your life, and then you're dead. You died with Christ Jesus, and you no longer live. Who lives in you? Christ lives in you. Christ lives in you. And the life you live now, how do you live it? What did the verse say? You live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself up for you. So what do you do? I mean, actually, when you get out of bed in the morning, what do you do? How do you live by faith? Trusting him. So what, is it toast or Weetabix? <laughs> you know, I mean, there's that, there's that joke about the woman who won't get out of bed until God tells her what socks to put on. You know, is that how faith is? Is that what it looks like? Is that how it is? You know, is that how we live? No? Faith is in him. Hmm? It's not what we do. And actually, what Paul says, for I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. So you don't live. Who lives? Christ lives. So who's going to live the life that you're actually walking out every day? Christ is going to live that life. Okay, so now, what will you add to that life? Because you've got God living in you. What will you add? What do you think he needs? Come on, stay awake. It's only the morning. You're going to add your obedience. But what will that mean? Stepping out in faith. So what does that mean? See, we have all these great phrases, don't we? Walking in faith. and Exactly, believing that he's got it. What does walking mean, walking in faith? I know you're all mature Christians and you all know this stuff. Come on. What does walking mean? It means living. Living means walking. It means literally every moment this is what I do, walking. So if I'm walking in faith, what am I doing? Trusting what? Hmm? What's his promise? Right. And? And? Yeah. And? Yeah. And? That it's not about you, it's about him. That he will cause all things to work together for your good. For those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28. 
this, just this morning when I was saying to the Lord, I don't know how to pray for this. I've got family things going on and I don't even have the words to know what to pray. I'm saying to the Lord, I don't know how to pray. I think I better do a course on prayer because I don't know how to do it and I'm really, I don't know what to say. And I open my Bible. This is the literal truth. I open my Bible and I was going to look at, but you cause all things to work together for good, right? And just before that is the verse... We don't know how to pray as we should. <laughs> so the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groans too deep to utter. And I was knocked off the... I was just like, how could that be? So when I'm walking by faith and I'm trusting God, what can I know for sure? And don't tell me that I can, you know, just tell me the basic bottom line, what I can know for sure. He will take me home. He will take me home. Where's home? Home's heaven, where he is. He will take me home and I will never have a moment when I am not with him. That understanding is, is key, isn't it, to the Christian life. He will lead you home, he will take you home, he will carry you home, he will, yeah. He will. He will lead you home, take you home, carry you home. But if it's Christ who is living in me and not me, if I was crucified with Christ and I no longer live, then there is a, uh, an understanding that he will live his life through me. But what's got to happen for that to happen? Well, surrender, I mean, it's just such a big word, isn't it? It's like, who can do it, really? Let's face it. You do it one minute, and then the very next minute, you don't even understand you've done it, and you don't even know what it meant. So, you, so who, what, what does it take for... I'm not saying surrender's wrong, because that is the right answer, but I couldn't have it first answer, so you've got to dig deeper. <laughs> so you've got to surrender, but what does that mean? How do you surrender and what do you surrender? Because we have this whole long list. Okay, now I have a list here of all the things I know that God doesn't like about me. And I've just got to surrender all that. And then I've got another list with the things that I know he wants me to be. So I've got to put all those in. Is that the Christian life? Is that what surrender is? What's surrender? What are you surrendering to? Yes, but, 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 but what is that surrender? What does it actually entail? What are you saying to God? You're saying to God, I believe that you will take me home and that you will do that better than I could even think of doing it. So I'm going to stop thinking of doing it. I'm going to take that list of all the things you don't like and I'm going to put it over here. And I'm going to take that list of all the things I think you want and I'm going to put it over here. And I'm just going to say, here I am, Lord. Here I am. Live through me. Yeah, we know that in here, Anne, don't we? We do know we can't do it. But oh my goodness, we want to all the time. So... So I don't quite know how I got there, but we're going to go back because I want to look at this word servant. 
Christ, we died to our old selves, we died to who we were, we died with Christ and he lives in us and the understanding that he lives in us and what that actually means is immense for Christians. But the understanding that who's living in me now is the God who willingly, deliberately became a servant. He became a servant. So the God that is living in me, the God that I am following, the God that I'm surrendering to, the God that I want to obey, the God that I love, the God that I want to be like is the servant. And he is the one who was least like a servant in his glorious being. He was the one who had to give up more than anything else, anyone else to be a servant. That's the God who's living in me. So it's not that you decide, right, I need to serve everybody. So how can I serve everybody? Okay, Janet, she looks like she needs a cup of tea, so I've got to make her a cup of tea. And then I'm going to rush around all you lot and serve all of you lot. And, and I'm just going to be so great. Just bring me all your prayer requests and I'm not going to get out of my chair in the morning till I've prayed for every one of you. And then I'm going to let you walk over me like a doormat and, and I'm going to let you say what you like to me. And I'm always going to be last in church sweeping up and first in church setting up. And I'm just going to serve in my local community and I'm going to run myself ragged so that I can serve you. Is that the servant? No, no why not? Yeah, no, but what, what's the bottom line? Why is that not it? Because our idea of what a servant is, is a million miles from God's idea of what a servant is. You look at the uh, definition of the, or the examples of servants in the Old Testament. You look at Genesis chapter 24 and Genesis um, 24 and uh, 15. Genesis 15 and Genesis 24 describe servants. And what they describe is not the person I've just described, not the person we think is the servant. The person that they describe is the most trusted person in the house. The servant of Abraham went to find a wife for his son Isaac and was entrusted with the most, the hugest task, the most responsible task. Uh, I think that's Genesis 20, um, 24. Yeah, go to Genesis 15. Sorry, I told you to go to 2 Corinthians, but I've, we're not there yet. Second uh, so Genesis 15... Verse um, 2 and 3. Somebody read those out loudly if you can. Abraham said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abraham said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my man. Thank you. Eliezer of Damascus was a servant. He was the servant of Abraham. And can you see what Abraham was going to give him? He was going to be Abraham's heir. This is not the position of a servant that we normally think of. Words change, meanings change, language changes over time. And we have to make sure that we understand what it is that God means when he says servant, when he uses that word. What does he mean? What does it mean that Jesus came to serve? 
What does it mean that he became the servant of all? Yeah, but yeah, yes. Let's get there in a minute, Patty. Isaiah 49, verse 5 to 7. We'll go back a little bit. And now says the Lord, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. Those, that's the verse that I um, uh, didn't read. He says, is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel? I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. Can you see how that fits? God is saying, I will make you my servant and you will bring salvation to the entire earth. What God is saying in a way that they couldn't understand and we find hard to understand is that I will be the servant. The triune God will uh, separate God the Father, God the Son. God will send the Son to be the servant. God will send the Son. Isaiah 49, 5-7. So, that's the title that Jesus chose for himself. That's the title that he, he wanted. That's the title he gave to the disciples. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Over and over in the New Testament, we see that that was the title that he gave to the disciples for himself. He was the servant, but in no way was he doing all the things that in our human thinking we come up with for servants. Can you see how important it is to really uh, kind of change our understanding? How important it is to actually gain our understanding literally from Scripture. Because if we try to understand what it is to be a believer by talking to everybody else, we're in serious trouble. (laughs) And that's what I think they were doing in Corinth all those 2,000 years ago. They were talking to other people who were telling them, Christians do this, you know, and they definitely don't do that. I mean, Christians, they don't drink, and they definitely don't smoke. I mean, really? Call yourself a Christian and you're still lighting up? God does not give those rules to his people. God actually says in his word that Christ fulfilled the law and that we might walk in a new law, the law of the Spirit, Christ fulfilled the law so that he, the one who fulfilled the law, would be able to live in us so that we would be fulfillers of the law. Not because we dream up a whole list of things that we have to do, but because we say, okay, Lord, I'm yours. Take me. Today is the day. Take me. I want you to live in and through me because I don't have a clue how to do it. Matthew 20, we will go there. Matthew 20, 20, verse 25 to 28. Um, Somebody read out those verses, please. 
Matthew 20, 25 to 28. He said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus saw himself and his mission in the perspective of servanthood. And his servanthood was to give his life as a ransom for many. And that's today. That's the day we live. Are we willing to give our lives in the service of other people? Are we willing to say to God, I don't know what that means, but I'm yours. I don't know what it means to live as a servant, but I'm willing to do it because I believe it will glorify you. Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, Being in the very nature God, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Christ did what he's calling us to do now. What he did was his desire was to serve God. His desire, his attitude towards other people was humility. What is humility? Hmm? Lack of pride, yeah. Well, what's, what's, if, if, you, if you're acting in humility, yeah, it's hard to humble yourself because as soon as you think about humbling yourself, oh my goodness, you're just like rising up there. Here I am. It's like Uriah Heap. I'm so humble. <laughs> you know, if they could only see how humble I'm being, because really I'm so great, it's taken a lot to get me down to your level. <laughs> so, can you see what's humility? Humility is not thinking too highly of yourself, not thinking too lowly of yourself. It's actually not thinking about yourself. That's what humility is, not thinking about yourself. Humility is thinking about other people. It's saying, actually, you're more important than me. Not because you're worth more in God's eyes, because you're not. Not because I'm worth less than you, but because I've chosen that you are my mission field. You are my purpose for being here. You are the reason Christ has left me here. Therefore, what you need, I will be. What you want, I will give. Because I will be doing it for him or he will be doing it through me. His mission, what was his mission? What was Jesus' mission? Hmm? Well, his mission was to give his life as a ransom for people. 
He gave his life that they might be disciples. You're right, Barbara, yes, he was teaching those disciples, his disciples, to be disciples so that they could then give their lives to make other disciples. You can't make disciples by telling people and banging them over the head with what they've got to do. Because who wants that? I mean, Alex said, stand up, didn't he? He said, stand up, and everything in me thought, no, sit down. We don't have to do what he says. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Sorry, Alex, it was just an easy example. You know, there's that, you know, there's that rebellion in us, there's that rebellion in most of us. And when you start telling people, this is what you've got to think, and this is what you've got to believe, and this is what you've got to do, bang goes the heels down, and I'm not doing it. I'm not. So what is it? When we're trying to make disciples, what is going to make disciples of other people? Example, right. So example, so love, yeah, and encouragement, yeah, and yes, accountable and vulnerable, yes, and yeah, Christ and us. So what was Christ? How was he described? John described him in John chapter 1. He said, and we beheld his glory full of grace. grace and truth. Grace and truth. The whole of the church in Corinth, the whole of the church in the Western world is hung up with either too much grace or too much truth and not much in the middle. There's not both, very seldom both. You can have all the truth in the world. You can know your Bible from back to front. You can know every scripture verse. You can really know it and wonderfully you can repeat it. And you have a verse for every occasion. But if you have no grace, no one will want to hear your voice. If you have no grace, no one will want to even be with you. The truth is spoken in grace, with grace. Paul will write, speak the truth in love. Grace and truth must go together. In the Corinthian church, they had lots of people full of grace. You can do what you like because we're all saved and it's wonderful. We're all going to love each other and you can live any way you want. And there were people who had truth. And oh my goodness, if you believe this, you are out. And if you don't believe that, then it's, it's trouble for you. Are you really even saved because you don't think like me? I mean, really? Honestly, because I mean, I've got a test and you can take it, a five-point test. And if you don't get five of them, I think you should really question your salvation. This is the problem. This is what we do. We go to one end or the other end. And all of the time, Christ is saying, I am the servant. How was I described? I was described as full of grace and truth. I was described as someone who gave his life as a ransom for many. I was described as someone who came to serve, not to be served. I was described as someone who always and only wanted the will of God in my life. I was described as someone who would do anything to please the Father. I was described as someone who only did what he heard his father doing and only said what he heard his father saying. Sorry, saw his father doing and heard his father speaking. That was the description of me. Is that the description of you? Is it the description of me? 
in all of my trying to please God, in all of my wanting to be the right servant, is that the description of me? Would people say, I am full of grace and truth? No, I'm, I'm not saying we can be Jesus, we cannot. If there's any teaching in you that you think you can be Christ, you cannot. You are not God and never will be, thankfully. You can emulate him, imitate him, try to live as he lived. You can ask him to live his life in you. And if you do and if you mean it, you will grow in grace and you will grow in truth and that will please you beyond your wildest dreams. You will love the fact that you are more gracious than you were last year. And you will love the world, the truth, that, the way that you are able to handle the truth. You will just love it that Christ will make his truth known to you. And he will fill you with grace so that you can actually reach out to people and they can know that they know that they know that you are someone who knows God. Wow, that Barbara, she knows God. I love being around her. She is so encouraging. She is so uplifting. She is so edifying. And she doesn't always tell me what I should and shouldn't be doing. She's just loving me and telling me the truth. Today's the day. Honestly, today's the day. Today is the day of salvation. And we don't know if we've got tomorrow. And I expect there are many people in this room who could testify to that in their own lives, that things are happening in their lives, in their families' lives. And you know that we don't know if they have tomorrow. You don't know if you have tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that God is calling me and calling you to say, will you live like me? Will you let me live through you? Because, oh my goodness, if this room full of people all said yes to God, wow, we would be an army, a victorious army out there. And no, we wouldn't get it all right. We would make loads of mistakes. We would have to pick each other up and dust each other off. And we would have to love each other and share with each other. And, and we would have to minister to each other. But oh my goodness, as other people saw us do it, they, could, they won't wait to try to get into this group. They will want to be in this family. Because this is a family that loves and cares and shares this is the family that has grace towards one another. This is a family that speaks truth. This is the family that won't give me necessarily what I want, but will always give me what I need. Will you do that? Will you choose this day that that is what you'll do? Isaiah wrote against a backdrop of... Um, arrogance in the people of Israel. Uh, if you read the early chapters in Isaiah, he talks about them really kind of thumbing their nose at God. And he says they have, God says to them, you know, you're coming with all your sacrifices, but they mean nothing because your heart is so far from me. Your heart is so far from me. And the New Testament is littered with the same thing. Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He says, um, times will come when men will not... Uh, no, that's chapter 4, sorry. Um, 
But realise this, that in the last days, difficult times will come when men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. Paul writes to the church and says the church will be like this, holding to a form of godliness, a form of religion, yet denying its power. That was exactly the same in Isaiah's day when he, he was writing and speaking and ministering to the uh, is Israelites. You have a form of worship. You have a form of religion, but it is fake. It's fake. You come to God with your sacrifices and your offerings and your heart is far from him. And Paul writes the same thing. In the last day, it's going to be like that in the church. There's going to be a form of religion, but no power. And, and, and what's the power that he's talking about, do you think? Yeah, we always think it is the Holy Spirit and we think of it in miracles and signs, don't we, and wonders like there'll be gold dust coming from the ceiling and there'll be wonderful singing and there'll be this and there'll be that. What is it that, what is the power actually, the power of the gospel, what's the power of God, what's the power of the Holy Spirit in your life? That you want to be holy. Don't you want to be holy? Everything in you wants to be holy. You want to be holy. The trouble is you can't be. You try and try and try and try and you can't be, but there's a desire in you for holiness. And if you're listening to me and you don't have that desire, search around for it. Because it's there in every believer. If you have the Holy Spirit, he wants you to be holy. What's holiness? Being set apart. Hmm? Who said Purity, it is, yes, all those things. What is holiness? In essence, what is holiness? Who is holy? God. God is holy, holy, holy. He is the only holy one, the only holy one. So you could try as you might to be pure, to be all of those things, but you couldn't be holy. The only way you can ever be holy is because God lives in you. And when he lives in you, you are holy. You are holy. You are holy to the Lord. Everything that God touched in the Old Testament became holy. Everything, even an old cup. If he touched it, it became holy. Is God in you? Do you have the witness of his spirit in you? Nod your heads, otherwise, oh my goodness. <laughs> Do you have the witness of the Holy Spirit in you? The answer is sometimes. You know, sometimes. Sometimes I recognize, sometimes I don't. But if you have that witness of the Holy Spirit in you, you are holy. You don't live holy always. You forget that you're holy a lot. And you're not holy. Actually, this physical body isn't necessarily wonderfully holy. But the you that is you is holy. The born-again you who is there, the new spirit that resides in you, the new man that you are is holy and will always be holy. So what, what must we be attempting, trying? What should we be thinking? What is our, when, you, when you hear me say that, what's your thinking? 
Don't be afraid. Come on out. We'll just all judge what you say. <laughs> What's your thinking? When you hear that, God lives in you and he is holy and now you are holy. You are holy unto the Lord. You are a vessel set apart for his use. He will use you and use you and use you. He will pour out sweet wine through your life. He will fill you with precious stones and precious gold. He will use you in the innermost sanctum of the holiest place because you are holy to the Lord. What does that make you think and feel? Vanessa's scared at the back. <laughs> Wonderful. You want to understand a bit more. What did you say, Patty? A bit stunned, a bit stunned, yeah. But what's, okay, what's your second thought? A bit stunned, wonderful. What's the second thought? Oh my gosh, help me get out of the way. <laughs> help me get out of the way. Because I want to live in that holiness. Don't you? I want to know, know that God is using me. Oh my goodness, I want to be poured out like a drink offering. That's what Paul said in Philippians. I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the service of your faith. And he loved that. He loved it. Why? Because he could see in that the evidence, the glory of his holiness, the glory of God in him, the glory of Christ making him into what he longs to be. He'll say, not that I've already attained it, not that I've already been made perfect, but I press on. I press on. For what? To lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has already laid hold of me. I am already holy and I press on to live holy. I am already in glory, but I press on to hold on to that glory. I am already wonderful in the Lord, but I press on to live and to be and to experience that wonderful in the Lord. Today is the day. Today is the day. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that God will pour himself out in and through you and you will bring people to him like you have never known before. And I hate preachers who say that because I always end up thinking, do you know what, well, how do you know? You know, you don't know where I work. You don't know that no one talks to me because I've told them about Jesus too many times. You know, you don't know. That. But what I do know is God. I know his promise. I know his promise. I've got stuff in my life, lots of little bits and pieces, nothing, nothing worse than yours, but I've got lots of bits and pieces going on, things that are hard. And you know, sometimes I could think, Lord, I know you haven't promised that it's all going to be fantastic. And actually, I know you haven't promised that you'll make my life here and now wonderful. I know people will die that I love. I know that my grandchildren may not come to know you. I, may, I know that they may be hurt. I know that they may be bullied in school. I know that they might make wrong choices. I know that this might happen or that might happen. I know that you haven't promised that this life will be perfect. So how? How am I going to live in that holiness? How am I going to receive that glory? And the answer always comes, I am God. And I have promised that you will know joy in the midst of all of your trials. Will you just lay hold of it? Will you just lay hold of it? Today's the day.
Today is the day. Yes, he is strong. He is strong. Yeah. Okay, well. <laughs> wow, it's 20 past 11. You've been talking way too much. Um, <laughs> okay, I've got to stop, haven't I? Because you need a cup of coffee, don't you? Yeah. Yes, you need a cup of coffee and so do I. So, yeah, we'll take a break till about quarter two and then we'll come back.